The Reluctant Conformist Chapter 4 Episode 1 The Engineer A quote relevant to Chapter 4 from Jean-Paul Sartre, 1905-1980 Man is condemned to be free because once he is thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. Freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. To see or not to see? That was the dilemma. Around the time Salverson's employment offer was made, Magnus's sister, Susan Maureen, who lived in England with her journalist husband Alan, overheard pub talk that a local company, Hawker Siddeley Aviation, was recruiting trainee engineers. Magnus made a prompt application and, much to his surprise and delight, was accepted as a trainee graduate engineer. Salverson's marine superintendent was mightily disgruntled on learning the news, but Magnus was not. After all, he'd seen and smelt Salverson's blood on the Hamburg docks, and it wasn't commercial whale's blood at that, but the scarlet froth oozing from the flared nostrils and ripped lips of the company's battle-weary Scottish crew. He'd also had major reservations about sailing on white crewed ships. He'd recently learned that a Manx friend, who had gone topside as a deck officer cadet, had suffered a fractured skull after being brutally beaten by sadistic members of his own ship's British crew. Providence, destiny, or mere chance had once again guided Magnus to the greener pastures of aviation and away from the seafarer's life toiling in the oppressive and claustrophobic engine rooms of merchant ships. For this unexpected opportunity, he was flying high and undeniably grateful. Hawker Siddeley Aviation was a massive enterprise, specialising in the design and production of airplanes, with factories throughout the British Isles and affiliates around the world. In due course, Magnus was assigned to work at both Manchester factories. Structural components of the planes, fuselage, wings, tailplanes, etc., were formed and fabricated at the Chatterton factory. These components were transported across the city to be assembled and fitted out at the Woodford plant, from where the finished aircraft were delivered to their new owners. Both factories dated back to World War II when aircraft production was frantic and Lancaster bombers were being manufactured faster than the Luftwaffe and German anti-aircraft ground fire could blast them out of the sky and bring down the bombers the enemy did. Of the 7,000 Lancaster bombers built during that insane conflict, most were shot down with the loss of approximately 55,000 aircrew of Bomber Command. Magnus started work with Orcusidley Aviation in the autumn of 1964, when the HS-748 twin-turboprop passenger plane and its military adaptation, the HS-780, were on the production lines. The HS-748 was designed as a replacement for the hundreds of aging Douglas DC-3 aircraft that had seen service around the world since before World War II, a quarter of a century earlier. Also, the pterodactyl-like Vulcan V-bomber and the Shackleton Coastal Command Aircraft, a modified version of the Lancaster Bomber, were continuously being refitted and upgraded in the Woodford hangars. The two factories combined catered for 
nearly every aspect of forward-looking, production, metallurgical, and design engineering. For this reason, and the educational opportunities offered, Hawker Siddeley Aviation was an ideal corporation in which to be employed as a trainee graduate engineer. Magnus's yearly activities were divided into more or less equal modules of college study and applied factory work. He enjoyed the study and, by applying himself, became a diligent and successful student. However, the work periods in the factories were a different matter entirely. To a young blood with a yen for the freedom of the outdoors and who had sailed the seven seas before he was nineteen, the rigid discipline of clocking in and out of a factory amounted to a self-imposed prison term in an atmosphere that stifled the spirit and curtailed the individual zest for life. Work on the factory production line was a sequence of dreary observation assignments in an atmosphere where high-pitched screaming air drills tortured the brain and the suffocating smell of synthetic adhesives constricted the throat. A very English class-driven surly obsequiousness, which most employees embraced as second nature, had inveigled itself into every aspect of factory life. The canteens and even the lavatories were segregated apartheid-style into factory workers, weekly and monthly staff, and executive grades. Magnus's designated place in this hierarchical caste system for meals and bowel movements was amongst the weekly staff. He did, however, venture into the factory workers' canteen on the occasion that the BBC was broadcasting its popular wireless programme, Workers' Playtime, from there, and once was enough. More mashed potatoes seemed to be thrown hither and yon than found its way into the factory workers' gullets. The toilet facilities were equally stratified and ghettoized. Magnus found the secluded two-cubicle monthly staff lavatories more comfortable and fresh than the weekly staff's line of whiffy flush toilet stalls or the windowless bacterial breeding ground that were the factory workers' running trough coops. Even considering these minor irritants, Magnus's time in aviation was happy, productive, and provided a good foundation on which to build a future career as a chartered engineer. It was an opportunity for which he would always remain indebted. He made good friends and survived several serious romances there, but on moving away, he lost touch. No matter how many New Year's resolutions he made, Magnus remained a hopeless networker throughout his life. Towards the end of his five years in aviation, he made several attempts to gain employment that might have been more agreeable than the robotic conformity of factory life. He was unsuccessful in an attempt to join BOAC as a trainee flight engineer, now an extinct species, as their specialist services were replaced by control computers. He also failed to impress London-based OCL as a potential design engineer engaged in the containerization of shipping. The only job he was accepted for was as crew on a three-masted schooner. The Golden Casualo, formerly a Baltic trader, was being refitted at Faversham in Kent as a charter vessel to carry passengers on naturalist holidays around the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific Ocean. But more of this later. In retrospect, Magnus's desire to leave aviation was perhaps short-sighted. Through hard work and application, 
his examination successes rendered him eligible to attend Cranfield University to complete an Air Traffic Transport Management MSc with Hawker Siddeley acting as sponsor. However, this was not to be. His erratic, adventurous nature won the day. During the late 1960s, Magnus found two popular TV drama series to be essential viewing, and one of the programmes would have a profound influence upon his next direction of travel. The Plainmakers addressed the political chicanery and double-dealing amongst the top echelons within the British aviation industry. He enjoyed the programme, but didn't need the series to understand that factory-based aircraft manufacture wasn't for him. The dramatic piece that truly captured his imagination and influenced his future was The Troubleshooters. This series tackled exciting crises in the oil exploration industry and featured the Australian actor Ray Barrett as the action man who travelled the world solving critical problems for a major oil company. In the spring of 1969, a small classified advertisement in Britain's Daily Telegraph newspaper stated that a French company, Geoservice, was recruiting a variety of technical personnel to train as geologists for work in the oil exploration industry. What more could he ask for? This was a get-out-of-jail-free card. He attended an interview in New Bond Street, London, and was immediately offered a position. Although Magnus more than satisfied the job description criteria, his cultural heritage may have also worked in his favour. The interviewer was a Frenchman from Brittany, and an influential member of the separatist Free Breton movement. Brittany is a region of France with close historic and ethnic ties to the ancient Celtic tribes of the British Isles, from which the Manx bloodline, due to their historic isolation, are directly descended. Magnus thought it unwise to enlighten the Frenchman that, in his case, claims to a long Celtic heritage were only partially true. DLA mapping, on his father's side, had read 100% Norse Viking, sullied only by the merest hint of Manx Neanderthal blood. The slender Stone Age connection didn't surprise Magnus's brother, James Arthur Ratcliffe. He knew perfectly well that Manx Neanderthals weren't an extinct species. On any Saturday afternoon, in the nursery hotel's smoke-filled public bar, there were a whole troop of them, slouched in the back corner, slugging pints and grunting excitedly at horse racing broadcast live on television. Not surprisingly, after five good years in Manchester, the draw of the familiar remained strong, but soon aviation and all that went with it was cast off. Magnus soon found his feet as a free agent, forging a new future, and Paris provided the space and opportunity to do just that.